Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Little Atoms Live from the International Anthony Burgess Centre in Manchester, in conversation with authors Emma Jane Unsworth and Zoe Lambert. I'm Neil, I'm Neil Denny, I do this thing called Little Atoms, which is a radio show which this month celebrated 10 years of going, so a um, bit tired, but you know, whatever, we endeavour. So um, I'm very pleased to introduce you tonight to, well I should say first of all, Zoe Lambert, because originally on this team was supposed to be Lee Rourke, he had to withdraw at the last minute, and heroically today, like Ollie Gunnar Solskjaer or something, Zoe has stepped into the breach and has come on and... I'm afraid I don't know a Manchester City version of that, so you know that's that's the extent of my of my football joke. So, Zoe Lambert is a writer based in Manchester. She lectures in creative writing at Lancaster University and has published numerous short stories in anthologies. Her first collection, The War Tour, which was published by Comma Press in 2012, is what Zoe's going to be reading from tonight. But she's currently working on a novel as well, which is called The Quiet Longing. Is it still called The Quiet Longing? That's up for grabs. Yeah, I thought you might say that. And then, too, Zoe's right is Emma Jane Unsworth, who is a journalist, and she won the Betty Trask Award for her novel Hungry, the Stars and Everything, which was also shortlisted for the 2012 Portico Prize. Her short story, I Arrived First, was included in the Best British Short Stories of 2012. Emma's latest novel is Animals, which won a 2015 Jerwood Fiction Uncovered Prize. And shall we read first? Emma, you read Whatever first. You fancy, and okay. then we'll talk about animals for a bit. Okay. And then Zoe Reed, and then we'll talk about okay, the war cool. talk for a bit. Okay. And then we'll talk about Manchester. Okay, cool. So I'm going to read some, a bit I haven't read before. Um, and the bit I'm going to read is, um, just to give you the sort of the setup of the book, in case you don't know it, um, it's, it was pitched as with nail with girls. Um, and because it's about two female friends who are basically just going around Manchester tearing up the town, don't really know what they're doing with their lives, drinking too much, um, taking drugs, bumbling around and just being idiots, largely. And they've been doing this for 10 years. And the, the problem that, that the, the sort of the, the crux of the, of the novel, I suppose, is that um, one of them, the narrator, has just got engaged to a man who's teetotal. So kind of double whammy of, of change in her life in that she's going to be moving out and getting married to this guy, but also he might want to kind of stop her drinking and doing all these terrible things she does with a friend. So... Um, 
So yes, yeah, so that's, that's the setup. She's called Laura. She's the narrator. Um, and so I'm going to read from just a little bit in, um, literally the second chapter, where Laura has woken up with a hellish hangover, which happens a lot, and she's remembering the previous night at the same time as remembering her responsibilities that day, which involve her fiancé. Okay. And Tyler is the name of her flatmate. Tyler and I had stayed a few hours in the pub, growing raucous with much table-pounding and face-gripping. We'd sorted plenty out over tables over the years. It was dark when we decided to head across town. We walked along the canal towpath, up over bridges, under arches. Above Deansgate Locks, there was a row of chain bars. Outside each bar was a small roped-off section guarded by doormen, where clubbers stood smoking. Tyler unhooked each rope as she passed, as though she was opening the pens in a zoo, saying, run, be free, now's your chance. Canal Street was manic with revelry, boys in fairy wings, gazelles in hot pants, the homeless and their hounds, disheveled after-work drinkers for whom one drink had turned into one too many, teenagers cramming burgers in their mouths outside neon-lit takeaways. We went into a club because someone told us it had a balcony reserved for VIPs, not that that stopped Tyler. In the unisex toilets, I got talking to a man who said his name was Chicken Sandwich. He slipped me a green pill. I split it with Tyler, and she said she'd got two Valiums for us for later from the doorman. We danced like wardrobes. I went into Jim's bathroom and ran myself a bath. Looking around, I knew that if I was going to have an input in any room, it really should be this one. Bathrooms are a favorite room. Some new tiling. Maybe I could do it myself. How hard could tiling be? I could get into DIY as a hobby, keep me busy. I like the idea of a wedding list at Wix. That would be funny. Screw John Lewis. Our guests, all 48 of them, could race to snap up the under-20-pound items, the bog brush holder and impractical wicker bin. I lit the half-collapsed candle by the side of the bath and stripped... Looking in the mirror, I saw a thread vein had burst on my cheek, just beneath the bag of my bloodshot left eye. You are a total dickhead, I said. I felt the whole bathroom swell and nod in agreement. Yes, you are, a total dickhead. What's I going to do about this veiny thing? Would Jim notice? I stepped back from the mirror, squinted, and stepped forward. It was noticeable. I could wash my face and then attempt to cover it with concealer. These things happened anyway with age. It could just be an age thing. It all started to change in your 30s. Things popped up all over the place. I had a ganglion at the base of my right middle finger that had sprung out of nowhere the previous month. I had a fallen arch in my foot that hadn't been there when I was 20. Now I had a thread vein. Furthermore, I deserved it. It was as though the huge punishing hand of God had reached down during the night and flicked me really hard in the face for being such a total dickhead. I walked into the bathroom and checked the time on the radio. I'd wasted a good 15 minutes inspecting my face, and it was now quarter past 11. T-minus 45 minutes until Jim landed. Fine, fine, cool, fine, fine, cool, fine. A bath was all about the first 30 seconds anyway, that almost unbearable immersion when the water feels so hot it's cold, your skin's receptors in blind panic mode. Washing, like imbibing water, felt like a chore. I did it as little as I could get away with. I cringed in the shower like a cat. Besides, I liked the various smells of myself. I often sat with my head to one side, nose close to my armpit. I liked the raw smells of other people too, in particular scalps, ears and the insides of wristwatches. These smells were more comforting than perfume or aftershave, which set me on edge with their keen social purpose. 
I went back into the bathroom, turned off the taps and stepped into the bath. Sweet, holy Jesus, it was a hot one. I gripped the bath handles and lowered myself, teeth gritted, legs reddening, pausing as the tide of firewater lapped at my navel. The last thing I could remember from the club was the lights going up and seeing Tyler's hair flattened to her cheeks and forehead, glued in place with her own sweat and also communal condensed sweat dripping luminously from the ceiling. Over on the bar, a man was on all fours as a second man held his arse crack open and a third poured a bottle of beer into it. The man on all fours was chicken sandwich. Tyler said, I think if I tried right now, I could probably do the caterpillar. Time to go. I dipped myself fully into the bath and dunked my head, came up gasping. I washed the holy trinity. I shaved my armpits. The hair on my legs was downy, mostly invisible, worse when meddled with. I shaved it occasionally in summer when my own treacherous aesthetics meant I couldn't go tightless otherwise. Tyler, coarser, darker, kept hers in honour of feminist historian Janet Fraser. All that time I save in body hair removal, I devote to revolution. I teased her about it whenever I caught her coming out of the bathroom. How much revolution this time? Oh, heaps. There's a lot of blood. I got out of the bath, pink and quivering, and hobbled to the clothes I'd taken off, lying in the middle of the floor. I didn't keep clothes at gyms as such, just the odd thing. A black vest, greying with age. A pair of thermal leggings. A silver lame thong Tyler had bought me as a joke. That, my friend, is just a yeast infection waiting to happen. My mobile rang. Where was it? Where was it? I ran into the hall and tipped the contents of my bag onto the floor. Running out of time now, that ten-ring emotional crescendo before the maddening voicemail tag team would ensue. I saw the phone, grabbed it, and answered. I can't feel my legs, Kaiser. I'm not quite dead. I'm just very badly burned. Film quotes. Self-charming standards. The dream house was our helpless Hotel California. I thought you were going to be Jim. Sorry to disappoint you. She sounded like she was lying down. Her voice was flat and gargly. Actually, it's a relief to hear you, I said. Mastering meaningful speech is next up on my list of things to achieve today. I'm not quite ready for Jim, but I can just blart vowel sounds at you and it's okay. It's more than okay. I understand your blarting perfectly. You're the world's leading expert in the field of my blarting. She inhaled and sighed. You staying there today, then? Jim's back shortly. You know that. Ah, she sniffed. Pulling rank, is he? It's not like that. I just need to get things straight. Myself, mainly. I'm practically brain dead. Jim might as well be coming home to someone on life support. Hey, at least he might have some sympathy for me that way. Listen, just don't apologize, whatever you do. That only feeds the fire. I made the mistake of reading the news earlier. You know what the biggest problem is right now with Western society? Our lack of real commitment to addressing climate change? Nope. Our pornographic appetite for contrition. You have to be sorry for everything all the time. Are you sorry you ate all those burgers? Are you sorry you smoked all those cigarettes? Are you sorry you said that dumb thing online? It's not morality. It's just another fix, another kind of greed. Give me all your sorry. I'm so hungry for sorry. But sorry changes nothing. There are more progressive motivations. When you go out and tear the night a new hole, you do it for a reason, even if that reason is taking a vacation from reason. Yeesh, Tyler. I really hate that expression. Sorry, forgot. You have previous. Hey, they were only internal and very small. I was eating too much bread. Thank you. Thank you.
Caitlin Doty. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Adams, a radio show about ideas and culture. So it's interesting that you just you just mentioned that quote where people have said this is like a, a, a female with nail and eye. Yeah. Um, there's obviously a long and heroic tradition of novels, films, whatever, about drunken men drinking. Yeah, sure. And this is a book about women unapologetically going out and having a good time and taking drink and taking drugs, mm-hmm. which shouldn't really be a particularly controversial thing, but for some reason it is, so let's perhaps talk about why. Yeah, I know, you'd think, but it's almost as though, yeah, women aren't allowed to do very much um, if, if, in sort of, you know, if you look at things like um, having an existential crisis even or kind of going on road trips. Road trips is another thing that I'm really sort of interested in, like road narratives in fiction and in kind of like popular culture across the kind of the arts, really. There's, there's a great essay that, I've, that I do refer to a lot by the writer Vanessa Veselka that's on a website called The American Reader, and she writes about how and wh- what the road symbolises to men and women and why we don't have these road narratives. For example, you know, we're female-centred. She thinks it's because the road symbolises... Well, for men, it symbolises the beginning of a journey, and for, for women, it symbolises the end of a journey because all you hear about are stories of rape and death. And, and so it's that diff, that, you know, those different kind of ideas of, of what it symbolises that mean we have a, yeah, a dearth of, of stories. And, and I think you, c- you can sort of apply that and look at what these things symbolise. So, so with the drinking and the drugs, which is what I chose to, t- to take on, partly, I mean, there were other themes in there too, but, but if you look at what those are related to, it's body ownership, and it's kind of what women can do with their bodies and what men can do with their bodies and what you have to stop doing and start doing at certain ages. And I really think... For women, there's a huge pressure to stop using your body for yourself when you reach a certain age, whatever you choose to do with it. And it's all about procreation. And it, the pressure is on to procreate and, and, to, and, to, and to hand your body over in that way. And look at the way that women's bodies become public property when they're pregnant. You hear so many people just like being touched and kind of like just feeling like they're, they're kind of owned and they're told what to do. And they're made to feel scared all the time. And, um, and, and so, yeah, I think it relates to that. I think it relates to what body ownership symbolises for men and women and that, so, does that answer the question at all? If well, yeah, really but you, on interesting, you raised this idea of the, um, I'm thinking of on the road or whatever, you know, the idea of the road trip. Mm-hmm. And so I bring you in here as well because there's, tr- there's travel in, in, in the war tour. Um, like often, for, often those narratives around men are about escaping from domesticity and escaping yep. from that, that sort of idea, which again is, is would, would have a whole other layer of condemnation if if it was a book about if it was a story about women turning their back on their you know their supposedly their role yeah those traditional ideals of kind of the domestic the beautiful those are things i did really want to take on even though i i didn't set out i think that just kind of happened through the writing of it it's so hard to remember because it's like two years ago since i wrote that book now and i'm remembering my original motivations i don't know if you find this it's kind of like where I actually started writing from. I feel like I've almost fictionalised it myself in terms of mm-hmm. talking about it so much since it happened. Um, but I, I know that I was aware of those things when I'd got a certain way through the book. I'm not sure I started out with, with such clear political motivations, but I know that they came into play for sure, and, and certainly now I do feel that, they, that they, my politics are obviously in, in that book in, in so many ways. Um, but yeah, the idea of the, of the domestic and idea of the beautiful, and, and I wanted there to be lots of bodily functions in the book as well, you know, women vomiting and farting and shitting and pissing. And, and um, I was talking about this to a, a journalist the other day, and, and he was sort of saying, well, you know, how, how extreme have reactions been? And I did have one man tell me that 
Um, I've had various people's parents usually say that they couldn't finish, they couldn't get more than a few pages into the book because they were so repulsed. Um, And then one man told me he physically cringed when he was reading the book and he was just like, I can't do it. But it's not, I think he's that bad. I don't know. Anyway, everyone has different ideas ideas about this. Um, But I did want it to be, yeah, just about like women. And and I went to the extremes because in many ways it's a farce as well. And I I played it for laughs. It isn't just all about, you know, serious politics. I do do play a lot of the bodily function stuff for laughs because it's funny. Farting's funny, and it should be forever. Um, so, um, so yeah, so, so there is that. But also, yeah, women have bodies too, and we should be able to do what, what we want with them. And it shouldn't be, there shouldn't be things that are deemed ladylike. Or, yeah, that, that to me is, is really inhibiting. And it's funny, very, very funny. And there's no sort of, it remains at that sort of tone. There's no sort of redemptive story. There's no. It's not. It's not like a cautionary tale. Yeah. They're not. Neither of the the girls are addicts, for instance. Neither of them end up in rehab or anything. You know, it's it's not. Yeah. Those those two things that you've touched on there, I really wanted to be clear about. It couldn't be about addiction because that's an entirely different thing. These girls use drink and drugs recreationally, and they overdo it. But God. We overdo all kinds of things that aren't chastised to that degree. We overdo stress. We overdo, you know, exercise. We overdo, we overdo things. These these girls, yeah, they 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 do. They take it to the nth degree, but, nth degree, but they know what they're doing as well, and they go through the process of the hangovers and that's and cycle. And actually, the, the things that are problematic about those cycles are much more to do with the people around for the narrator than they are to do with the things she's ingesting. So, I did want to um, to yeah, also not make it. A cautionary tale in any way, not a kind of a tale of penance and repentance and retribution and rebirth and all of those things. Because I really hate that when that when that happens, especially when you find it in in Hollywood. It's the worst actually for this. It's so hard to find a film where women do anything that, that isn't conservative and and aren't reprimanded and don't have to go through a process of penance and repentance and, and re- retribution. And I saw Trainwreck. I don't know if anyone's seen Trainwreck. Um, Amy Schumer, um, the new film that's just out. And it's fab. And it does loads of really progressive things, I really think. Um, in the same way that Bridesmaids did. I don't know if you, if you saw that. But that was great in that it showed women um, just being a bit filthy and shitting in the street by accident um and and yeah. <laughs> obviously otherwise it'd be dreadful um and and taking drugs on a plate you know and, and even though prescription drugs it was all kind of like you know carefully done um i, I pres- presume because it gets to a certain stage and the funders in hollywood all panic if it's not kind of you know showing women to be in some way you know non-threatening yeah i really like that film it's Which one? Bridesmaids. Bridesmaids. Yeah, it's yeah, so funny, it's, isn't it? It's, it's lovely. And I think um, in, in, in your book, it seems the only kind of cautionary tale is the forthcoming doom of marriage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, just out. say no. <laughs> Watch out for that, girls. <laughs> yeah, defo. I think that that kind of... The oppression of people and of relationships is far, and the addictive cycles of certain friendships and what you do to yourself in love sometimes actually far more damaging and more of a threat to her kind of health and progress and all the rest of it so but but yeah with, I, I was so disappointed well do you know what? I'm not going to tell you the ending of Trainwreck and say why I didn't like it because I'm not going to spoil it but but yeah I didn't I thought it was brilliant and I love Amy Schumer and I'd recommend it heartily but I didn't like the ending very much because it did that thing well Zoe's just brought up about you know the spectre of marriage in animals 
And all through the book, Laura goes and visits people that she used to know, she was at university with, used to go out clubbing and drinking and taking drugs with, mm -hmm. people that have given it up and have settled for domesticity and got married or had children. And every time it's like boring and she walks away thinking, God, how did I used to know, you know, that person is not the person I used to know. It's not like presented as this is the thing that you should be aspiring to. Yeah, I didn't want to sort of slam procreation, slam, you know, motherhood or mothers or um, marriage um, or any of those things. It's, it's cool if you want to do them. I guess maybe I did go too far the other way, though, because I just feel like there aren't those alternatives presented as appealingly to women. And, and the scary thing is we are just so conditioned, especially in our generation. Maybe it's changing, and I really hope it is, but I just feel like we are so conditioned to, to just naturally aspire to those so that you, you have a sense of disappointment and, or failure or idiocy if you don't fall in. I don't know, what do you think, Zoe? Do you agree that, you know, that, you, that do you feel conditioned to do certain things in your life or, or that you'll fail without, without having done them, like marriage and procreation or not? No, you don't. You can just go disagree. Um, I, I think generally um, women do. Um, and I, I, I do think, I, yeah, I came up from a, a background where that was really kind of part of it. But overall... Um, do you think I, it's an issue of feminism? Or? Yeah, I think it still is. Um, I think it really, it really is a big, a big issue for, for, for most women still. But I think um, there's also other, other issues that are also really, really pressing. Equal pay. Yeah. Probably a bit more money. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But interestingly, is, I mean, perhaps this is just the wherever we are, third wave, fourth wave, or whatever. But feminism now seems to be about the idea of having both. And still, therefore, there is this thing about, you know, you can have a career and you can have children. And that's the thing that you should, you should be attempting to attain, both things. Therefore, women who choose not to have a career and stay at home are sort of looked down upon, but then at the same time people who choose to have careers and not have children are sort of looked down upon by the same people. Um, for me, it's not really... It goes down to these kind of ideas of choice, and it's not really about choice because it's, it's, it's about the social factors around it in terms of what's happening right now with the cuts, with um, yeah. child tax credits, with, um, you know, with a, you know, you know, they're not being... Um, Childcare is so expensive... Um, so it's not, re you know, it's kind of posed as a choice you make, but it, for me, it doesn't really feel like a choice. It feels like it's it's more about um, the kind of the, the monetary and the economic things that are happening right now with in Britain. Okay, well, I'm going to get Zoe to read, but first of all, I just wanted to mention also that um, Laura, the character in 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 Animals, is also she's a, a attempted to be a novelist, and she's she's. Mm -hmm. Um, she's writing a book called Bacon, which is about a priest that is having an affair with a talking pig. Yeah. That's got nothing to do with what we're going to talk about tonight, but I just <laughs> wanted to raise it because I do think, you know, I think it's important for us creative people to keep the idea of people having relationships with pigs <laughs> in yeah. the um, common quarantine. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, didn't even, yeah. No, that that was going to... What do you think about all that? Do you want to talk about David Cameron? Shall we? We could talk we about David Cameron for a bit. No one's going to stop us, are they? <laughs> Um, <laughs> um, well, what really horrified me wasn't that, but there's an article I read about it that was really called The Leveller, from the magazine called The Leveller, about how that this is the power structure of, 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 our, of our society, that those at the top, kind of, they, they do these horrendous things, 
because it's, it's, it's kind of used as a way of keeping them in line. And it's like... The yeah, it's like the Scientologists. Yeah, it's like the Scientologists right at the top. Um, and I guess it was, it was more that, that there's, there's, there's all these... This is kind of... That's just power. It's, it's, it's like we're still back in the 18th century. And that's still going on, really. Rather than David Cameron did this horrendous thing, so what? But it's it's part of the. You mean the Daily Mail showing its strength? Yeah, and it, that's that as that that as well. It, that's for me was it's more that it's not that that happened, but that's part of the boys' club. Yeah. That that goes on. So you're a member. You do that. So you're a member, and you're a boys' club, and that enables you to be in power. That was really frightening. Mm-hmm. Let's continue this in the I'm bar just afterwards. Party. I thought I went to some pretty good party. I went to uni in Liverpool. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Cre- I had cream. Nothing ever involved. You know, a penis and a, and a pig's head. Very, very tame. But also, there is something weird about a billionaire being able to dictate well, exactly. the politics and of the channel country, the hate, who, who lives even in, of liberals, know, to channel liberal hate yeah. against yeah. anyone. And the, and, the, and the other anyway. thing, and the other thing they did was um, burn a fifty-pound note in front of a homeless person. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Where do where do you go from here? Yeah. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Zoe, would you like to read us something from, from the water? Okay. Um, I'm going to read... It was really lovely. So Neil and you knew I was going to be taking part this afternoon, as did I. And he's valiantly read quite a number of stories from my book on the train, um, which is really lovely. And... Um, when I got here, I said, oh... It's really I'm good. There's some copies at the back, buy it. Yeah, and he's, I'm going to read a story further on um, called 33 Bullets from the middle of the book, which explores... It's funny because I wrote this a number of years ago, and sometimes things that are very current go out of date, but this has not gone out of date. In some ways, this is more pressing than it ever was when I wrote it um, because it's about an asylum seeker in a detention centre in the UK who has fled um, Iran Um, he's a Kurd and uh, in in some ways it's kind of more now than than, than at any point before Um, there's some French in it so I apologise for my French accents that comes across there's also lots of law the crowd pushes Devrim towards the doors he coughs the smoke burning his throat and mouth Someone knocks the back of his knee, his bad knee, and his legs buckle, so he grabs the denim-clad shoulder in front of him as the corridor widens into a foyer. Stand back, stand back, shouts a guard. The doors open, and Devrim is propelled outside. More and more people spill out of the doors, so he limps towards the grass where others have collapsed, coughing. He sinks to the ground, squinting in the bright sunlight. Ahead, 
he can see four men running towards a fence. He reaches for his plastic bag of papers, but of course, he doesn't have them. The Immigration Acts before Immigration Judge Blair between Devrin Badger, appellant, and the Secretary of State for the Home Department. Determination and reasons. The appellant is a citizen of Iran born on the 25th of September 1957 and appeals under Section 82 of the Nationality Immigration Asylum Act 2002 against the respondent's refusal of his asylum claim under the 1951 Geneva Convention. I told you, my French. Jaffet was lying on the other bed, his arm drawn over his eyes. Vous écrivez tous les temps. He sat up, making a writing movement with his hand. Je suis, Devrim said, faltering. A book about poetry. Et vous un poète? No, no. Devrim shifted on his bed, picking up his notes and papers. Everybody assumed he was a poet. He had written verse, but he had only ever shown it to his wife, who had said, very nice, Devrim, the way she might praise a child. I am a professor of Kurdish literature, he said. But Jaffet had turned to face the wall, his blue T-shirt stretched over his spine, revealing a thin scar down his neck. When Jaffet had undressed, Devrim had seen other scars on his protruding ribs and back. Perhaps he had been beaten or tortured. It was hard to tell because... Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Because in the last five days, Jaffet had hardly spoken or moved from his bed he was just lying there, waiting to be deported. Devrim had seen a lot of people like that in the removal centers. People slumped on beds and chairs or shuffling around, shoulders so hunched they might topple over. At least he had his research to keep him going. He was in the middle of writing an article on the poetry of Ahmed Arif and he made sure he wrote every day while stretched on his bed. Not that there was anywhere to go, just a canteen for meals and an hour in the yard where he would smoke his daily cigarette. 
On the first day, he had offered Japheth one, but he was only interested in the lighter, which had a tiny floating naked woman in it. A campaigner who had visited Devram in Harmonsworth had given it to him, along with two pairs of Union Jack underpants. The appellant's claim. The appellant's claim may be briefly summarized as follows. He claims he worked for the University of Tehran as professor of Persian and Kurdish literatures. On the 25th of June, 2006, the appellant was getting off a train at Shahid Madami station in Tehran when armed police led him out of the station and forced him into a car. Here, they placed a hood on his head and drove him to an unknown prison. He claims he was kept in a cell for three months where he was interrogated and tortured for information on Kurdish rebels and their whereabouts. He was accused of crimes against national security, which included supporting Kurdish separatism and being an active member of the PKK. He was accused of spreading Kurdish propaganda to students through his research in Kurdish poetry and literary culture. The appellant claims he was released without explanation. He returned home to find his house had been raided and his wife's corpse in the kitchen. He claims she was stabbed numerous times. The appellant seemingly fled Iran to Turkey and from there flew to the UK using, by his own admission, a false passport. Devrim woke and reached for a piece of paper from the pile beside his bed. He sat upright, muttering, There is the Mengen Mountain, when dawn creeps up to Lake Van. He found his pen from under the pillow. This is the Mengen Mountain, he repeated, scribbling the words down. Fugitive pigeons at water pools, something something, and partridge flocks. His memory wasn't what it was. He should have spent years memorizing poetry instead of writing about it. Devrim, Japhet moaned, pulling his cover over him. Sorry. He pulled his A4 pad from under his pillow. He'd written exactly two paragraphs on his article, Ahmed Arif and the Forms of Resistance in Kurdish Poetry. Two paragraphs in five weeks. Back home, he would have finished it in days. Kurdish poetry has long been a means of fighting the hegemony of ruling cultures. Since the emergence of the Kurdish literature in the 18th and 19th centuries, when poets began to write in the dialects of Sarani and Kumanji instead of the ruling languages, Kurdish poetry has given breadth to Kurdish resistance against persecution. The poet Abdullah Goran revolutionized Kurdish poetry by writing the patterns of folk songs instead of traditional Arabic meters. For the recent generation of Kurdish poets, such as Farhad Shakali, Ahmed Arif, and others, free verse, folk songs, and the rhythms of Kurdish speech are all strategies in their resistance, even when incorporated into the language of their oppressors. In Arif's a case, Kurdish. He frowned at the page. He couldn't work in this cell. He just couldn't concentrate. How he missed his books and desk in his university office, where it was cool in the mornings, and he would write with coffee before the queue of students grew in the hall. He'd been the nominal Kurdish lecturer. He doubted his, co his colleagues had made much of a fuss about his disappearance. People disappeared, and then they were forgotten. What he needed was to contact a university. That's what Zainab would suggest. She'd always known what to do. My academic Peshmerga, she called him. 
But it was Zainab who was a Peshmerga, not him. She campaigned for women's rights, Kurdish rights, spent evenings printing leaflets and in meetings with other women. Anyway, he'd always imagined freedom fighters wearing red turbans and riding horses and waving Kalashnikovs. They were romantic figures with lined, leathery faces, with squinting eyes, and probably very different to the men hiding in the Candle Mountains. He had played Peshmergas when he was a child, but he was usually cast as the evil militia, jumping on his brother Barma and the other boys, and then sat on till his mother shooed them away and recruited him as, as her thread holder. He'd like watching the spool between her hands as she wove, intent and frowning, and from the thick colored threads, a carpet emerged. That is the memory he returns to, his mother weaving, and beyond her, the mountains, grated and hazy in the heat. When he moved to the city with Zainab, he tried to encourage her to weave carpets. We had no inclination, even though we bought her threads and wool. You do it then, she'd said. You make your carpet. I have better things to do. She still liked to call him my academic Peshmerga, as if he was an intellectual revolutionary. But he could still see the dried blood on the wall, the wide mark on the table, the upturned chairs, and the books scattered on the floor. No, he couldn't think of this. I'll end there. Tom Barbash, and you're listening to Little Adams, a radio show about ideas and culture. Sorry, that was a story about uh, the Kurdish asylum seeker, but just in, a, in a sort of wider sense, let's talk about what this book is about. So it's a collection of short stories, but also the stories are linked often, share similar characters, some more of a sort of story cycle than a collection, a standalone collection of short stories. But what's the, the sort of overarching theme of it? Um, it's about how we think about war and how we flee from it at the same time. So the title, the idea of the war tour, is um, it, we came from d doing a lot of travelling in Europe where interrailing and everywhere you go, like for example Lithuania where we've been as well, um, is, is in many ways a, a war tour. But in, it's sort of our, ex our experience of looking at that and, 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 and it becoming a tourist destination um, so the, the title story um, is about going around on, a, on this tour of Sarajevo. Um, but on the other hand, um, when, when war really approaches us up like this, we turn away. So we don't want to know. We don't want to know the stories of people who are fleeing war. Mm -hmm. um, so it's that kind of dual response to um, conflict that on one hand, it's, it's, it's so other people's pain where you do Auschwitz it's also a pain forgotten about our own colonial past and our own complicity, not only in the present, but also with like, Britain's own past as a, as, a, as a colonial power, but also how we really ignore what's going on in the world right now. 
which is the current story, which is more about... And so, going back to that one you just read about the asylum seeker, so you talked about then your own travels into railing and stuff and going to visit some of those places. Obviously, there's, you know, you've done sort of library research or whatever, but also you've, you've worked with asylum seekers as well. So let's talk about the various ways in which you've researched the stories that you... Well, not that ended up in this book, but that you developed this book from. Yeah, they, um, they came a lot from, from my work with a particular one woman from, from um, Uganda. And I was working for a number of years trying to help her overcome her, to her appeal. Um, eventually she did. Um, she did. She got her, and it was through the legacy, there was basically such a backlog of cases in the UK that they kind of, some of these legacy were eventually granted asylum. And um, his, so um, her story really inspired um, one called The Breakfast She Had, which is another story, but it's nothing biographically to do with her. That's um, about Sudan. She's from Uganda. Um, but it's in a lot of ways, all these stories come from that, the pain that people go through and the horrendous, the horrendous legal system where you are basically positioned as a criminal. I mean, a criminal is, is, is in a better position than an asylum seeker in that they are in, if you commit a crime, you are innocent till proven guilty. The, the, guilt, the proof is, 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 on, is, is on the other side. If you're claiming asylum, you have to prove that you are telling the truth. So you are a liar till you prove that you are actually saying what you claim. And this kind of links in a lot of ways to what's happening right now with, kind of, uh, with the changes with kind of people claiming disability benefits. It's really the same system. You, you're a liar, and they're trying to prove that you're a liar. And, it's, and, and, the, and they do the same tactics. And so if you, like, the whole story kind of builds up that the, the, the legal bits are just pr- trying to claim that he is, um, he's lying. And, and when I was working with, uh, with my friend from Uganda, what was really interesting, at one point, uh, there was a, a, a lawyer came, a solicitor came to meet lots of women, and, and she was talking to them about how they could build up their cases. And, and she said, what you need to do, you need to imagine what's happened to you like a film, and it has a, has a cause and effect. So you need to explain to them the cause and effect of what's happened to you. Think of it like a film. And it was it was a real dawning moment for me then that this, the whole system was that you, you that it was based on that the you know, truth was seen as having this kind of cause and effect of, of literature, of realism, when actually what happened to people was so horrific and devastating, they don't know sometimes why what's happened happened. They don't have, they don't have, any, pre- they don't have any evidence. They don't have any proof. Um, pe- you know, trauma causes a disconnection. You cannot prove these things. And um, so the story kind of goes on to kind of play with that, and that he's, he, he's basically he's lost his case, and they, they deny his incomplete in existence, and he thinks he's going to hopefully win his application because if he can just appeal to universities being an academic, they will see the, you know, they see the truth. But you know, he, burns, he burns all his academic papers in the end. Is there, I mean, obviously writing about these stories is highlighting the situation that's happening to these people, which is a really important thing to do. But at the same time, there's probably a bit of sort of bit unethical to write about people's actual stories. So to what, is there a sort of tension there? To what extent have you been able to use real experiences in the book or did you deliberately avoid doing that? 
Um, I completely avoided using that, any real experiences at all. I mean, Devrim is, com is utterly made up. And, and then, so when the, the first story, the breakfast she had, when that originally came out, and it was in the uh, Independent on the Sunday, and so I showed it to um, uh, the lady I was working with, and she was like, oh, can you write my story? I was like, oh, well, for me, this is, it's made up, but it was felt like emotionally, it, it, it was her story, um, but it wasn't the real uh, facts because that, that would have been a bit wrong. Like, hi, yeah, I'm just going to use them. I'm really interested in that, though. Why is that unethical? But why? Why is that unethical to take someone else's story and, and tell it from your own point of view without their permission? Well, I'll ask you that, then, because Tyler, one of the characters in, in Animal, is sort of based on somebody, isn't it? Well, yeah, she's kind of based on, um, on a very good friend of mine. At least she started that way. But by the time that the book was, was well, long before it was done, in order for the, for the plot to work and the structure to work, she had to grow miles away from the friend that was kind of, was kind of the seed of, of her character, I suppose, um, just because otherwise it, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't have worked because... Um, yeah, because it's a novel and it had to work over 288 pages in this certain way. So she had to she had to grow away. Otherwise, it would have just been kind of like a diary, which is which which I wasn't writing. I was I was trying to yeah structure structure a novel. So, but I guess if you're asking me whether I felt it was unethical to even start with her, then the answer is no. Does that make me a terrible person? Well, what did she think? I mean, was she? Did you say she hey, I'm going to write I'm going to write a story about you? She or? loved it. But I didn't ask for her permission yeah. because I kind of think that you have the right to write about anything that you come into contact with or hear or experience or like or think about. I kind of think that's okay. Yeah, I think it, it, it does. It, it's, it's true to an extent, though, but um, I suppose for me, if you're writing about the most disempowered people in society, you have to be aware of your own position in relation to them. And because I was working and helping, and in, in you know, and then and, and doing this kind of role where I was kind of um, a volunteer, so so then to just sort of use that in my it writing felt a bit vampiric. Yeah, and I think there's a power relation there as well because I had a voice, they don't have a voice, um, and you have to be aware of that. You you do have a little bit more of, of mm -hmm. a voice than other people. So, but it's on the hand you do need to kind of it was in some ways. For me, it was really important to write about this because I was so passionate about it and, and it needs to be there in discussion. That, but fictionalizing it and, and, and making it fiction kind of bridges that kind of ethical dilemma because this is no one's story. This, this is a character, Devrim. Devrim doesn't exist. And in many ways, he's very linked to me because he's a failed academic, which is what I felt at the time. And I'm really interested in how discourse works in short stories. So, so I kind of purposefully pitched the language of, of, the, of the court documents and the language that uses against um, the narration of the character's own story and how he tells his own story in the third person. So you've got this clash of, of languages. So you've got the officious voice of... of of, um, of court language used to deny the veracity, to deny the truth of what they've been through. Um, and so the, the kind of, so for me, the tension of the story is how these two languages clash against each other. 
um, and, the, and the kind of effect that has. And um, I didn't read the whole thing today, but when, when I first read out the story, it was a really interesting experience as a writer because I'd, I'd written it as just purely as a document in the story. And the first time I read it out, in, unintentionally, I'd done a little bit of practice, but it was only in the actual reading. It was in Didsbury. I remember very clearly that the, the voice of, of those documents started to take on this really annoying tone of someone who just doesn't believe what's going on. It's like, oh, you know, these asylum seekers coming here. This is another one. And it kind of created, started to become a character in the language, but it was only, interestingly, in the performance, within the reading of it, that it, it, for me, this character came alive, and it was really this person who is just so sick of it all. It's like, it's like your class, you know, this home office privileged man who is, is just like, oh, not another one, not another one, which is the kind of the language we hear all the time. So that being the story isn't a problem because it, it's, it's that bashing up against um, Devrim's own narrative and then the poem as well that happens in it, which has a big point, which is in a different voice. I wanted to talk about short stories and as a collection of short stories, short stories being... I think until quite recently, quite unfashionable, but there's a bit of a renaissance of them at the moment, um, which is nice, which is lucky. Um, do you prefer that form? I mean, you're writing, a, you're partway through writing a novel now, so do you prefer this form of short stories? How are you finding the difference of writing a novel to the short stories? Oh, moving from short stories to a novel is a disaster. Um, it's really tricky because um, there's an intensity with short stories and you, you're, you're there... And I suppose what I'm trying to do is approach my novel without losing my short story identity. So there's quite a lot of voices. Mm. And so there's going to be, there are um, a number of narratives, but they're all quite short in terms of novel length. So, but it's a really different, it's a different work. It's a different kind of writing. Um, and there's a lot of joy as well, because I think there was one reviewer of The Water who kind of, some of the stories are about 7,000 words long, and he went, I think she's going to desert us <laughs> to novels. She's obviously etching slightly longer which is true it was a very perceptive comment actually so I mean you can do a lot more in terms of scope and mixing things up with a novel but um, I think that hope with the war toy is that you can that the you can see that short stories can actually do so much you don't have to just be one moment you can do their whole life you can you can mess about with them you can do a lot more than you think all right, I'm just looking at the time. I think we should spend ten minutes talking about Manchester. So you're both, I could call you both Manchester writers, as someone who's not from Manchester. So how has Manchester, for both of you, influenced your writing? Lots. As a, as a setting, for sure. Kind of the first two novels um, that I wrote are both set completely. In, well, they go on a few road trips, um, but, but essentially they're set in Manchester. Um, the one that I've just, that I'm just finishing at the moment, is um, largely set in North Manchester. It's an unspecified kind of northern town. It's kind of based on Bury, um, but, but I don't say that because I didn't want to say that. I wanted it to be a little bit more nebulous than that. Um, so, so yeah, just very much so in t- in terms of setting because it just suits my imagination and and the characters and and sort of the the, the stories that I've wanted to tell. With, with the city's being with the city being a sort of character within that, just where Manchester's been up to has kind of um, 
fitted the, the story that I've been telling, what, sort of the, the, the way that the city's been looking or things that have been happening, um, that it's just, it's just felt right. And also, because I'm not, I'm not a big researcher in that way, like Zoe, um, I, I tend to. <laughs> I don't. But that's not to say I don't spend a lot of time writing because I really think, um, I really think 90% of writing's thinking. I don't know what you think, but, but, but I really think it's very little. Well, what you actually, the, the time that you spent committing words to the page is such a small part of writing for me. It's mostly thinking and thinking through what I'm writing about, thinking through uh, what the characters are going through and, and what the. How yeah, what, what they're doing emotionally and where where that's going overall in, in the story, and so that's what I that's what that's how I'd rather spend my time, I suppose, um, rather than researching locations that I don't know, um, or even sort of uh, life lifestyles, I suppose, that I don't know. So far, I might get bored and I might do that uh, in the future, but but so far, I, I felt I felt like I've had enough fodder and enough questions still and enough curiosity about um the the places that i know certainly you know at face value and i've wanted to delve in in different ways um rather than, than researching um locations so far and zoe so the war tour i mean it's obviously set in lots of places but it's sort of anchored in manchester yeah so um i was just saying earlier it's definitely manchester's the kind of the coat hanger of the book it hangs it hangs on manchester and um so they all connect through, like, 30, with 30 bullets, they go on to cause a fire and burn burn the detention centre, which is also Manchester Airport. Um, and then another, there's another story. So they all connect in these little so, ways. Yes, I hadn't read that one. So That's yes. the reason Lieben's born. She's leaving. She's leaving in the smoke at the airport. It's because yeah. um, yeah, yeah. Devon and Jaffa are about to cause a massive fire. Um, so there's that connection between them that there's, there's, for me was important because we kind of get on with our lives and the fact that we go on holiday from an airport and right there there's a prison for people who haven't committed a crime and they're there and it's just so horrific. So that sense of it moving past our lives in the present right now in Manchester was important to kind of anchor it. Zoe, you're published by Comma, which are a, a Manchester-based publishing house anyway. So I was going to say, what is the literary scene up here like? So what's the difference of being, you know, clearly, you know, the vast majority of the, of the literary establishment is down in London, but you're published by a, lit- a, a, a publishing house in Manchester. We both started our careers in Manchester, didn't we? Your first book yeah. was um, ba- was published from here as well. And that's yeah. and I think that regional support has been really important um, because, yeah, I think, I think Maria's right, like, there was that sort of, you're a, bit, you're a bit parochial, aren't you? I've definitely heard the same thing, and people in the past being said, you know, set it in London and... Well, but the problem I have, it's quite often, it's a, it's it's kind of fetishized in a in a weird way. The north, in in you know, and it's kind of it, things can't there can't just be a great story told in the north without it having to be specifically northern, or there be something northern about it. Do you know what I mean? Th- there's like going to end up a, a section of the bookshops for yeah. northern novels. <laughs> yeah, in, next in to misery memoirs, northern David Peace, and, and, and I, I hate and that. You. A friend of mine actually did have um, a book. The, the cover of his book, they, they sent it back to him and, and they literally put flat caps and whippets on it. <laughs> like, li, li, yeah, no names, but but yeah, and he was obviously horrified. So, no, but just because, you know, that, that kind, that really dated idea of what the North symbolises, it's only a couple of years ago. But I suppose, yeah, it's, it's that thing of, of just wanting it to be allowed to be the norm. 
rather than something, you know, special that is, you know, why couldn't it just happen here? The geography isn't, you know, the focus of, of the story, which it, I actually think it rarely is in, in I don't know, if it's a lot of literary fiction that I read, it's much more about characters, and, and I know they're connected, but, but I think that, you know, why, why can't you have those things set in the North, those stories set in the North, if, if that's where the writer wants to write them from, without it being like a special feature? Um, the current book is entirely set in Manchester. Um, there's a little bit where one character goes to London and his entire experience of that is of like Londoners just rushing past him and getting really annoyed because he's standing in his way, not sure where to go. <laughs> That's London <laughs> for northern people. <laughs> um, just one more thing then for me. I'll, I'll ask you both this. And again, it's sort of related to writing in Manchester. But Zoe, I, I read in a different interview of you, you talking about going out to write in like cafes and bars or something and not you know not writing at home so tell me about that and then emma what i want to talk about where you write yeah i actually write more at home these days um because i feel a lot better when i was writing that i had a lot of anxiety issues and i had to get out the house all the time um and now i feel a little slightly more at ease so i can stay at home on my own and feel okay, feel okay about it. But I still really love um, just going to somewhere and focusing. It can really help. And the, the white noise of people around you can be fantastic. And the focus of, 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 of places like that and of libraries is always, always brilliant. Where do you write a lot now these days? Wherever I can, honestly. Because I'm always dashing around. I feel like I'm living a lot on trains, which is great. Because um, I, I do enjoy... That and, and and a bit of a I am a bit nomadic in that way in that um, I like to always be on the move and have my next journey planned and have my backpacks in, in a way, um, but so I but I suppose I just grab the time wherever I can and wherever I am and I don't sort of it, it's rare that I can choose to spend a day in a specific location the, at the moment um, and plan it like I used to be able to, um, but but I but given the choice. That the, my favourite place to write is in a camper van in Scotland. That, that's kind of like the ideal for me. That's where I, yeah, I'm happiest. But I think that's just because I'm happiest anyway. But, um, but yeah, I do probably do my, my what I feel is my best writing up there. But just anywhere, yeah, a friend's kitchen table, mum and dad's house, mum and dad's living room, on the sofa, on a train, in a car, wherever, wherever. I'll just end, I was just remembering there when you mentioned the cafes, I was going to end that what, what really joy about writing in cafes is like you bump into people. I remember working in Nero's on Oxford Road, not that far from here, when I was working on the water and doing my PhD and failing miserably, which is the heart of 33 bullets, is failing to write a PhD in academically. And um, which is like, you know, you can connect to people very different to yourself. And this guy came in and he was like, um, and, he, and, and he was homeless, he was sat at a table and he was like, what are you doing? I was like, I'm trying to write a book. He went, I buy, I get a job before you finish that. <laughs> and I was like, probably. Okay, so um, Zoe Lambert and Emma Jane, thank you very much for. Please show your appreciation for our speakers. Thank you. Thanks, Neil. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. The show is supported by 89Up and hosted by Positive Internet. You can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. 
You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our relaunch website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs>